everybody. If you would grab a seat, and as you do, grab your Bible, turn with me to Psalm chapter 30. Psalm chapter 30. Um, it is so good to be back. This might be a particularly long introduction. Thanks, Danielle. Um, this might be a particularly long because we're just going to talk for a minute, just because I want to. It's been a couple of months, so let's talk about things. You know, day one, I got up. I, I'm just kidding. I'm not going to go through all 60 days uh, of this. What did I have for breakfast that day? It was, it was probably a smoothie. I started strong on the healthy, and then, and then it was bacon about month two. But I, I started with smoothies. I'm pretty confident. But I haven't seen one in a while. So, um, Hey, so good to be back. Uh, a few things to get started. One, um, when you're gone two months and you don't take communion for two months... Sometimes communion malfunctions in the first service at 2 o'clock, so that's what this is. So some of you are like, hey, he forgot to look in the mirror before he came to church today. It was clean when I got here, um, but the communion cup spilt on me, so let's get that out of the way. I'm well aware I have a spot. Everybody's pointed it out to me. A few of you have given me one of those Tide pens. It helped a little, uh, but thanks for trying. Um, it, sabbatical was awesome. I, I want to say this statement, and I want to hear it in context a little bit as I think about preaching. You know, coming at the end of sabbatical, I wasn't really sure what my emotions were going to be. As much as I love my job, I didn't know if I was just going to really love not working for two months, and then it was going to be like, oh man, I'm really sad that sabbatical's over, I got to go back to work. But that was not the case. You know, our emotions, we don't choose them. They just kind of happen. They let us know how we're feeling and about the, about the end of six weeks was the point where I was like, all right, I'm ready to be back. Like, sabbatical's been great. It's been restful. But I miss New Hope. I want to be back. And I want to say it even more specifically. As I begin to think about what I was missing, I didn't necessarily miss everything in the, in the same way as I did others. I love to preach. Don't get this wrong. But I wasn't like, I'm dying to get back to preaching. Right? I, I, I'm dying to get back to uh, meetings. I'm dying to get back to certain things. I, I, once again, I love to preach. Some of you just heard me go, he just said he doesn't like preaching as he begins his sermon. Um, that's not what I'm saying. What I'm trying to say is what, I, what is, is true in my heart, what I said to my wife, and I want to say to you is I, I really just missed you all. I missed being here. I missed hanging out and having conversations. And I'm grateful to worship together. I'm grateful to open God's word. And I'm grateful for the opportunity to preach again. Absolutely. But I want you to know that I have missed you greatly. And I have missed just being with you, hearing what's going on. And so, uh, so today, after service and the days to come, I just want to hear about what's, what's going on in life. How are things going? We got the boiler fixed. That, that's, I, heard, I heard that happen. Yes, that's great. Thank you, all for making, thank you all for making that happen, um, and other things as well, and it's been um, just a blessing for me. So I want to say thank you to everyone who just kind of filled in the gap. I know a lot of you served in a lot of different ways, uh, deacons and a lot of pastoral care and ministry. Thank you to the staff for just kind of making things happen, for those preachers that stepped in in my absence. Can we just give a round of applause, just a thank you. Um, so there's a lot that, even in my absence, ministry doesn't stop and church doesn't stop. And so thank you to everyone, all the leaders in various capacities who just continued to make things uh, happen as, uh, in my absence. But I'm so glad to be back. Good to see you all. It's springtime. It's, it's Holy Week. It's a good time. Let's open God's Word together. Psalm chapter 30. Psalm chapter 30. This, this particular psalm, as 
you're turning to uh, those, that particular psalm, it is connected to Palm Sunday. Like for me, uh, I'm connecting the ideas of these. We read the text from uh, Palm Sunday where the, Jesus comes entering in. This is a tradition in both Old Testament and culture, ancient Near Eastern culture, where a king, a conquering king, would come into a city that people would praise him. And so the recognition of Jesus coming in and people praising him was a recognition that they saw him to be king, that they saw him to be who he said he is. Now, it's uh, a little shocking in the story that just a few days later that these same people would end up crucifying Jesus. But nonetheless, Palm Sunday is a representation of us praising a king. And when we think about the turn of events from Palm Sunday, from praising Jesus as he enters into Jerusalem, his holy city, to what would happen in this upcoming Holy Week, ultimately the betrayal, death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus, it, it, it kind of sets a plot, if you will, to what I'm going to pull out in Psalm 30. A story of positive and negatives, of darkness and light, a story where things don't always seem to go as we expected, but there's always this promise of hope and life and resurrection that comes as we celebrate the Easter story. So Psalm chapter 30, these first few verses will not be on the screen, so follow along with me. But when we get to our main text, verses 4 and 5, it will be on the screen. But Psalms 30, verse 1, King David says, I will extol you, O Lord, for you have drawn me up and have not let my foes rejoice over me. O Lord my God, I cried to you for help, and you have healed me. O Lord, you have brought up my soul from Sheol. You restored me to life from among those who go down to the pit. Real simply, we don't exactly know what specific event that King David is referencing. Based off uh, the whole, uh, there's a couple events. One kind of stands out. If you remember the King David story, he was a conquering king. He was a mighty king, and he got a little bit puffed up. And there's this moment where he went and uh, counted everybody in the kingdom. He did a census. And God ultimately saw that as a sinful thing. Now, we see other moments in Scripture where there's a census. And so the census in and of itself was not the wicked thing. But it was the heart behind which David did the census, which was, I want to see how much I have. It's a picture of a really, you know, kind of maybe greedy rich person just sitting around counting money. Like it's just, they're just relishing in all that they have. And so King David kind of sends out this census to go, look how big my kingdom is. It's a picture of how stubborn and how prideful he is. Verse 6 and 7 allude to that. But the psalm says that ultimately God brought him low. God broke him, and whether it was through sickness or through an enemy that he's referring to, we don't know exactly, but it's a picture of him being brought low and him crying out to God and God healing him. And verse 3 says, he brought his soul from Sheol. Sheol is a reference to the depths of the earth. From darkness can't get much lower, ultimately a place of death. But it says, you restored me to life from among those whom go down to the pit. So it's a picture of salvation and great tragedy. And then we come to our verses in 4 and 5. It says this, Sing praises to the Lord, O you his saints, and give thanks to his holy name. For his anger is but for a moment, and his favor for a lifetime. Weeping may tarry for the night, but joy comes in the morning. Three questions I want to ask around this text as we give an encouragement, I hope, to our hearts today, as well as to shine light on the promise 
of what Palm Sunday and Holy Easter week means to us. Three questions. The first one is this. What are we commanded to do here? What, what are we to do? King David just came from victory. King David was just brought from Sheol into life. King David has just been healed. What is the command that he gives to his people that he is leading in light of this? And it says this in verse 4. Sing praises to the Lord. Sing praises to the Lord. Romans chapter 12, verse 1 says this, I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable. This is your act of worship. That verse, in light of the first 11 chapters of Romans, which first 11 chapters give a summary of God's grace and mercy, of how he has saved us. And then Paul says in Romans 12, 1, okay, based off that, go live a life of worship unto God. Every single day, your life laid on the altar as a living sacrifice. And so we take that rightfully to say that we as Christians worship God every day with our lives. How we talk, how we live, how we spend money, our attitudes, how our relationships, everything we do is an act of worship. Yes. But I want us to also see that that shouldn't minimize what we do when we come to church that we call worship. The singing and praising unto God. Yes, we are every moment of our life to worship him with our life, but that shouldn't minimize the call and the importance to specifically worship through song. Let me maybe illustrate it this way on how both of these kind of ideas can be true at the same time, that everything is worship, but yet at the same time, singing is a specific kind and emphasis of worship. When we talk about theologically the presence of God, you may have heard the phrase God's omnipresence which means that God exists in all places at all times. There's not a place in his creation where his presence doesn't exist. But at the same time, we might pray, God, we ask for your presence to dwell with us. Well, hold on. I thought his presence was already here, but yet scripture tells us also to call God to manifest his presence. Well, that's the, kind of the same idea with worship here. Yes, God's presence is everywhere, but at the same time, he emphasized and manifests his presence in a special way all throughout Scripture. So yet, present at all time, but then manifests and reveals himself in specific places at times without the neglect of the other. Well, the same is true here. We are to worship at all times, but yet have a unique call as Christians throughout Scripture to praise and worship God specifically through song. This is one of the importances of why we see on Palm Sunday the singing of praises. We see King David, if we want to skip down, not going to be on the screen, but Psalm 30, verse 6, he says this, as for me, I said in my prosperity, I shall never be moved. He's talking about his pride, but your favor, O Lord, you made my mountain stand strong. You hid your face. I was dismayed. So he's talking about, he's poetically talking about how he was prideful and God humbled him. And then he says this, to you, O Lord, I cry in verse 8, And to the Lord, I plead for mercy. So what does David cry out to God as an argument for mercy? What profit is there in my death if I go down to the pit? Who, or excuse me, will the dust praise you? Will it tell of your faithfulness? Recognize his argument. God, if you allow me to die, who's going to sing your praises? As if to say, God, you should let me live so that I can sing your praises. Understand that King David is recognizing that the salvation of God is for a purpose of singing praises unto God. A specific act of singing 
And so he tells his people, what are we to do? We are to sing praises in the context of calamity, in the context of that weeping might tarry through the night, but joy comes with the morning. I don't, I don't know about your experiences, but for me, there, I can think of a few moments where in my life there's been, I would just say, a particular uh, feeling of that I was, in the, I was in the middle of the night. Like where the text says, weeping may tarry through the night. Tarry meaning remain with us through the darkness. That sadness and tragedy will remain, but morning is coming. And, and so you could think maybe of a season in your life where you've been in that darkness. And those are moments for me where honestly there is something about coming into with the people of God in song and worship that God just did a work in my heart. Uh, we'll, we'll give a specific example. I remember the last week of December of this past year when Sophia and all that happened that week and just me coming into worship, if I can summarize what happened between getting that phone call and to that Sunday, it was a, uh, just an overwhelming different types of all kinds of different emotions. Motions of going not wanting to sing, motions of uh, frustration, anger, questions, motions of honestly what I told y'all that Sunday. I don't really know what to say, but there was something. I don't know if it was true for you, but at least it was true for me. There was something that happened in my heart that day when I just sang. There was something that just happened when I go, God, I don't, I don't have the right words to pray. I don't have the right words to preach, but I do know this, that morning is coming and I'm just going to sing praises. And there's something in how God has created us to worship him and receive his grace amidst that worship. There's a, there's a statement you've heard me say before. John Piper said it and made it famous. He said, God is most glorified in us when we are most satisfied in him. It's a statement that says God is glorified by us at the same time that we find our complete joy and satisfaction in him. So actually God is glorified in us receiving grace. The fact that we receive grace and that changes our life, it changes our perspective, it changes how we respond to God, therefore actually glorifies God. So it's our receiving from God that causes and allows him to receive from us. And so it's this moment when we sing praises unto him. God has in his sovereign plan, has allowed music in a unique way, I personally believe, to be an avenue in which he pours out just healing and restoration in our hearts. It's the reason, one of the reasons why as a pastor, I will encourage you, hey, I want to encourage you to come to worship. Now, um, I, I, honest, we're going to have a few sabbatical revelations over the next few weeks. I grew up in a home that uh, my parents I'm so grateful for them, took me to church, discipled me, even as a teenager. At times, I didn't want to go to church. They continued to make me go to church, and they were like, if you're going to live under our roof, you're going to go to church, that whole thing, and, you know, rebellious at times. Nonetheless, I always had to go to church. Graduate high school, kind of get out on my own. I immediately get a job at a church. Guess what? You got to go to church when you have a job at a church. And so sabbatical comes at 33 years old, and the first time, I'm like, I ain't got to go to church. First time in my life. I get a choice. I ain't got to go to church. I went to church. Sometimes I didn't go to church, but I had this recognition. recognition. 
No one ever really has to go to church. The fact that anybody shows up at all is like a wonderful thing. Like, none of y'all had to be here. Some of y'all did. But the rest of y'all didn't. And the fact that you're here is an incredible blessing. And I realize sometimes how easy it is to go, "Ah, I just don't want to fight that traffic. But why do we do it? Here's one of the reasons. Because I believe that God and his mysterious plan works in our hearts in just a unique way in these moments that doesn't always happen when we're not singing and praising with his people, which leads me to question number two. Who is called to do this? He says, he says in verse four, sing praises to the Lord, O you his saints. His saints. Generic truth, all of God's creation should praise and worship him. Sin is simply summarized as by the fact that people didn't praise and worship God. They chose to praise and worship themselves. They chose to rebel. We chose to rebel. That's what sin is. We chose to do things in our own way instead of praising and worship God. So in his creation order, he called us to praise and worship him. But in sin, we didn't. But saints literally means to be set apart. It means people in which God has called back unto himself. People that God has redeemed and saved. The church. So specifically for us, as we think about this, is a challenge to go, church, you his saints, the people that God has redeemed and saved, the people that God has set apart, you are uniquely called to praise and worship God. We have conversations in life, especially even in Christian life. What, what is our purpose? Like, I think God has created us to live on purpose, and it's helpful for us to understand why we do what we do in life and careers and everything and understand the importance and how it might serve others and various things. But we talk about what is our purpose. This text gives us a very unique purpose. It says, simply you saints, God has redeemed you, set you apart for one of the primary purposes of simply to sing praises and glory unto his name. Notice King David didn't cry out to God and said, hey, if you killed me, The best king ever in the Old Testament is going to be gone. The great warrior, the guy who killed Goliath, like, he's all going to be gone. He didn't didn't turn to himself as king. He didn't turn to his other things. He simply turned to the fact as, I am someone who will praise you. If I die, I cannot praise you. And he simply calls out that. Have you ever considered the fact that God has redeemed you and saved you and has given you the opportunity to sing praises unto his name as a sufficient purpose for your existence? It's a sufficient purpose. Now, we have other purposes, and God's given us other missions and other things to do, but I want you to see that your life has incredible purpose by taking what the breath that God's given you and singing unto him. And I think it glorifies him, and I think and believe that God uses it in a special way in our hearts, specifically in moments that we see and in situations like verse 5. For his anger is but for a moment, and his favor is for a lifetime. Now, we don't like to talk about the anger of God. And the point here isn't to emphasize the anger or not anger. The point is the timeline. His anger is for his moment. God is a just God. He's a holy God, and he does have a just and righteous wrath. That is an aspect of him. But we see that his anger is for a moment. But his favor, the the idea of favor, shining face upon. We often end the service with the benediction of Numbers chapter 6. God, may your face shine upon us. Bless us and be gracious to us. That's what this means. God, may you put your favor on us. 
And King David says, just for a moment, your anger has been upon me, but your favor will last for eternity. Your favor is good. So leads me to question number three. Why are we to sing praises unto him? Why are we the saints called to sing praises unto God? What does the text say? Verse four, sing praises to the Lord, O you his saints, and give thanks to his holy name. Three answers to the question of why. First, simply for who he is. This is all going to hopefully be new, I mean, not new, very repetitive truths of why we worship. But we worship and sing out to him because of who he is. We sing out Hosanna simply because of the fact that he is king, that he is to be exalted, that he is holy. That is enough. For no other reason, the fact that he is God, he has created everything, is a sufficient reason for us to sing and worship him. That he is a loving and gracious God. That he is the one who cares for us and walks with us through the valley of the shadow of death. When we talk about and think about the idea that weeping will tarry through the nights. And we think about maybe that some of us are going, I'm living in the night. It's midnight. It's the darkest of dark. It's not a full moon out. It's just pitch black. It's a dark season of my life. We worship him because he is the God who says, I'm with you even in that moment. That I'm a holy God. That I'm transcendent. Fancy word to say, I'm above all of creation. He stands outside of time and outside of existence, but yet at the same time is one who is near to the brokenhearted, who says, I will never leave you nor forsake you. We worship him and sing praises unto him for who he is. But then second, we sing praises unto him for what he has done. What he's done. We're celebrating the Easter week. It's the ultimate celebration of what he has done. That he gave his life He drew near to us, and he went and died on the cross, a sinner's death, although not a sinner. Never sinned, never rebelled, never broke God's commandments, his Father, in any way. Scripture says that he was perfectly obedient to the Father, yet he chose in our place to bear the wrath of the Father, that he took on judgment so that you could have life. What has he done for you? He has given you everything. There's a famous Jewish tradition at the Passover, as it came specifically out of the first Passover that would, be, that would be sung. We see elements of it in the Psalms. We see elements of it throughout the prophets. But it's a, a, a tradition where they would sing and recount all that God has done. It would go something like this. God, we praise you for the fact that you brought us out of Egypt and you carried us through the sea. And we praise you for that. And if you did nothing else for us, that would have been enough. But you did more. You then, and go on to recount, that you provided food for us and manna for us in the wilderness and, and water for us and guided us by your presence. You, and then recount, you carried us into the promised land and on and on and on and on and on. But after each moment, they would stop and go, but if you did nothing else for us, that would have been enough. And the point was to reflect on that we don't praise you for what you might do tomorrow, but we praise you sufficiently for what you have already done for us yesterday. When we think about Easter week and we think about what Christ has done for us, 
That is a sufficient reason to praise him. If he gives us no other earthly blessing, he is still worthy to be praised. If he does nothing else for us to provide for our physical life on this side of eternity, he is still worthy to be praised because he gave his life to give us life for all eternity. Do we see that? I'm so grateful that God gives us many blessings beyond eternal salvation. But let us not allow our praise to be contingent upon anything else other than for who he is, what he has already done for us on the cross. And then thirdly, there is a promise still yet, though, that he will, what he will do in the future. One of the things that I love about Palm Sunday, in the all of the story of scriptures, yes, it, it begins the Holy Easter week, which is so special to us, so special to the story of scripture, but it's also a foreshadowing of the promise of the end, of a promise of a king who once again will ride in into his holy city to redeem his people. But this time he's not coming on a meek and mild little colt. He's coming on a war horse and he is a mighty warrior and he's coming in and coming as a conquering king. He went in first as the crucified savior and he's riding back as a conquering king. And there will be a moment where all of creation will cry out the same as we did on Palm Sunday or the same that it did happen on Palm Sunday. Hosanna in the highest to the king. We worship him for who he is, what he has done, and what he will do. We worship him for the promise that though weeping may tarry through the night, joy comes in the morning. Joy's coming. Morning is coming. I want you to apply that biblical truth in the light of who Christ is in a few uh, time frames. First, in your immediate life. In immediate life. Some of us, in one way or another, are living in various kind of weeping, will tarry through the night type lives and type stories, type seasons. We are. We're praying for God to show and reveal himself in the healing of our sister Sophia. Maybe through job or finances or other family situations. We're, we're crying out, going, God, we're trusting in you. And there's this promise that we see from this text that in Jesus, joy always comes in the morning. We're reminded as we come to Good Friday and Saturday that the disciples are like, what now? Like, like the, all hope is lost. Talk about a, a weeping will tear you through the night moment, but they had no idea. They should have because Jesus told them, but they weren't listening like we often don't. But Jesus told them that Sunday was coming, but they didn't realize Sunday was coming. Morning is coming. And, here's, and maybe here's a simple takeaway I want you to get. With Jesus, morning is always coming. Even when he died, morning was coming on Sunday. Morning is coming. And because of Jesus and because of what we know in the Scriptures of the New Testament, Revelation specifically, there's a promise that morning is coming for all eternity. So time frame one, maybe we're in an immediate season. And we just go, God, I I need your joy in the morning. I need your joy even amidst this weeping. I need your joy. Might you find your satisfaction in him as you sing and praise, praise unto him. But also on a second time frame, not in this side of life immediately, but for eternity. There is a promise that morning is coming for eternity, meaning that Christ will return and he will make all things new. The last 2,000 years in church history has been a story just like any history, you can share from various perspectives, right? A history book is always written from a perspective. 
When we look at Christianity, there's two perspectives that I want to put in front of you. Perspective one, we see a beautiful picture of God's grace and mercy and gospel being preached so that the people will hear all over the world. Nations will hear all throughout history and people come to know Christ. We can read history the last 2,000 years and see how God has worked mightily to show his grace and the gospel to people. But we can also see it from another perspective. It's still a perspective of great brokenness, of war, of suffering, of heartache, of starvation. It's still a history of great tears and sadness and brokenness. And the promise of Jesus is that one day, perspective two is all going to be gone. That one day, as I think about Palm Sunday and the fact that Jesus comes entering in as a mighty king, and one day he promises to come back as a mighty king. And when I think about all of history, as there's weeping may tarry through the night, but joy comes in the morning. There's this promise in Revelation, in a revelation that God will make all things new. And it specifically says he will wipe away every tear. It's a simple way to say there is nothing left to cry about because I have taken everything that is broken and I've made it right again. We long for that day. Therefore, David would say, church, saints, sing praises unto God. Sing praises unto his holy name. Because though tears may tarry through the night, joy comes in the morning. This week, as we reflect on Easter, might we reflect from a perspective of hope that there is always a morning in Jesus, that Sunday is always coming, resurrection is always coming, life is here in Jesus. And therefore, we can take our immediate situations, we can take our pain, we can take our trials and our tragedies, and we can lay them at Jesus' feet and trust that he will walk with us through the night and he will carry us holding our hand into the morning for all eternity. Let's pray. Jesus, we just take a moment and we reflect on this promise that because we still live on the side of eternity before you've made all things new, that you've restored all things, there is still brokenness and tragedy in our lives. We're grateful that we don't have to endure those by ourselves. We have brothers and sisters around us, and best yet, we have you with us. We're grateful for that, but nonetheless, we still have seasons of great tragedy and heartache, and we long for those days to be done. We long for you to make all things new. We long for you to return again as a king entering into his holy city, the new Jerusalem, in which your people, all of creation, it says, Scripture says, Every knee will bow. Every tongue will confess that Jesus is Lord. All of creation will cry out, Hosanna in the highest. So we long for that and we worship you for those reasons. And Jesus, now, even as we just sing, Lord, we sing for a purpose. We sing to glorify you. We sing because we know there's healing and hope in you. There's salvation in you. There's grace in you. And so, Jesus, would you pour out your grace in our hearts today as we sing? Would you bring healing into our sadness and brokenness? We bring healing into bodies, minds. Might you be glorified in us as we are satisfied in you through song. We hope today's message was encouraging for you. 
We'd also love to hear how God used this message to speak to you. You can email us at info at newhopeny.org. You can also find us on Facebook and Instagram. Our handle for those outlets is New Hope NYC. Our website is www.newhopeny.org. If you are in the New York City area, we have 4 p.m. worship gatherings on Sundays at 164-2 Gothels Avenue in Jamaica, Queens. We're praying for you, and we hope to see you soon.